Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. All right. How are you guys doing? Good. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And it is Palm Sunday, so happy Palm Sunday, everybody. We will pray and get into it. What's that? Oh, thank you. All right, Lord, we, um, we ask this morning as we open your word that you would remind us of all that you've done, that you were headed down the Mount of Olives on a donkey for one purpose, and that was to save our wretched souls. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning we would allow the truth of the gospel the truth of the cross and resurrection, to change the way that we live our lives now. We bring our lives in line with you being our heavenly Father and what that means. So we don't want to be here just playing church. We want to be the church you intended us to be in the world around us. Make us a light to our community, Lord. Would you come now and speak to each one of us right where we're at? We pray this together as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and theologically and biblically, Palm Sunday is a big deal, right? From a prophetic standpoint, Jesus is being presented to the nation of Israel as the fulfillment of the Passover. So he is that final once-for-all Passover sacrifice that has been pictured through the Passover for the Jewish people for some 1,500 years. From a salvation standpoint, for the rest of the world, Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem for one reason, and that is to go to the cross and die, to rise three days later to prove that he has conquered death. And so Jesus is not riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives because he likes to ride donkeys. He has a singular purpose. He's about to set humanity free from the guilt of our sin. That's a big deal. And it's upon the cross that we're going to put most of our focus today, that for which Jesus was headed through the East Gate up onto the Temple Mount and steadfast headed for. And most years, I do more of a classic triumphal entry type message on Palm Sunday. Maybe it's because I've just done it so many times or we've heard it so many times. I felt led to maybe something different. And um, what I want to do this morning is talk about one particular aspect of what Jesus was doing when he was headed toward the cross. Not our classic Palm Sunday triumphal entry message, but that one aspect is this. That the cross of Jesus Christ and what happened there should affect the way that you and I live now. It should affect the way that we live out our lives in the here, in the now. What I mean by that is this. Most of the time when you and I think about the purpose and the benefit of the cross, our minds usually focus on its eternal benefits, right? that our sins were paid for by Christ on the cross, and heaven is now our eternal future. 
our mind usually moves towards eternity. Jesus bought our eternity with him forever on the cross, which is true, which is amazing, which we should celebrate. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross that saves our soul for all eternity. Amen? But the purpose of the cross and the blood of the unblemished lamb does not end with salvation. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross should transform our daily lives now. You and I should live differently now than we used to in light of the cross. And so that's why Jesus did things like institute communion for us as a regular practice that we would come forward and and reflect upon the, the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ to remind us that we were bought with a great price to remind us that we're no longer under the bondage of sin and slaves to sin, to remind us that because of the blood of Jesus, we now have, we did it before, but we now have the power to die to sin and live a new life in Christ. We have the ability now through Christ to die to sin, to put away that old sinful life, to reject it, and live now in the here and now differently. We're in the book of Romans in our regular study, and you guys remember Romans 6. It was all about that. Romans 6, 6 says this. Now, know this, that your old self was what? Crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. What it's telling us is this, that our sin was crucified with Jesus then so that we can live a transformed life now. And that's what our text is challenging us to today. And I felt led to a text here in 1 Peter chapter 1 from the time that I was reading and getting ready for our home groups, figuring out what we we're going to do for home groups. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. And when I read this passage in verse 13 through 19, I knew it was what I wanted to do on, on Palm Sunday, even though 1 Peter is not your classic go-to for a Palm Sunday. This is where I felt the Lord led us. Now, we're going to get to verse 13 in a second. But the first half of the chapter here in 1 Peter is all about the future. The first half is about the amazing truth of the gospel, our inheritance in Christ, and the salvation that is waiting for us. The first half of the chapter is celebrating the immense grace and mercy and blessing that have been given to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. So it'll say things like this. In 1 Peter 1, chapter 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But it's about the future, because then it goes on to say, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, and is reserved for you in heaven, who is protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice. In this future, forever in heaven with Jesus, 
we greatly rejoice. We should greatly rejoice. These truths should bring great comfort and joy to the heart of every born-again believer. It should well up in us and overflow being turned back to the Lord in the form of worship. But there's more. As the first half deals with eternity, the second half now turns and transitions. And it says this, because these things are true, because your eternity is set and secure in Christ, because these things are true, it should transform the way you live here and now. And so now it turns in the second half of Peter to a call for action in this life, in the here and now. Look at verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but from the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so what's being told to us here is that because we have been redeemed with the precious blood of the unblemished, spotless Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, because this is true, therefore, prepare your minds for action in the here and now. In other words, we're being told, don't equate being a Christian to just sitting around waiting for heaven. Rather, have a mindset and a mentality for action. What he's calling us to is to get in the game now, which is a challenge that the modern American church desperately needs, does it not? Because the American church today is largely riddled with a consumer mentality or an audience mentality. And across this nation today on the Lord's Day, many people walked into a church building and they sat down hoping to be nothing but entertained. And they were hoping that the music would be the music that they like and that the, the sermon would give them a warm, fuzzy feeling. And then they will leave and decide whether it was a good showing or not. And many churchgoers that have sat in a church on this very Sunday their whole view and purpose for the church is just to give them a warm, fuzzy feeling. They showed up, they clocked in, they clocked out. Lord, I checked it off, I'll see you next week. And that's what church is to them. And that's way too common in church world today. Now, the exception to that are those who embrace the biblical view of Christianity and church those who understand their position within it, where each believer, every single one of us, 
is called and gifted and sent to a particular God-given purpose. And then those who understand that endeavor to walk out that purpose. And that's what Peter is challenging us when he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. He then goes on in verse 14 to say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. The clear and undeniable teaching of the New Testament, consistent throughout the whole thing, is that we are, as children of God now, called to live differently, to live new lives in Christ, not to be conformed to that former life. Another translation says, don't slip back into that old way of living because it was so costly to save you from your sin. And because you are now a child of God, reject, turn away from that old sinful life. That's the message throughout the whole of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5 lays it out well. Ephesians chapter 5 kind of is a parallel with what we're studying this morning in 1 Peter 1. And it says this, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is is not proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of things. Then he says in verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. Now, there's a couple of key verses in there that we want to look at. Verse 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. This corresponds with what we just read in 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15 in our text, right? Be imitators of God as beloved children. And in 1 Peter, we just read, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But then it says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. And so he's saying, because you're now children of God, Your pursuit should be the things of your Father. It should be godliness. It should be more love. It should be more purity, more charity, more compassion, more grace, and more mercy for people. Another key verse from there was verse 8 in Ephesians 5, where it said this, You were formerly darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of of the light. That's the operative word. Walk, live in it, prepare your minds for action, go out there and live this thing out. This new life in Christ that every one of us that have turned our life over to Christ and surrendered our life and been regenerated by His Spirit, this new life in Christ is supposed to shine to the people and the world around us. Jesus said it when He said in Matthew chapter um, 5 verse 14, you're the light of the world. 
And then in verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a, good, such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so God's design for his followers was that we would be different. We would be unique from the world, that we might be a light in the darkness around us. Now, that leads us into the incredibly lofty calling of verses 15 and 16. So as you have your Bibles open, look at verse 15 and 16 of 1 Peter. Don't ever close your Bibles in here. We are a Bible study in church. Look at verse 15. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now that's quite a calling, is it not? The Scripture is calling us to be holy in the same way that God is holy. This is an often misunderstood verse. The word in verse 15 that the New American Standard Version translates as behavior is a little bit of an unfortunate translation. It kind of means behavior and it kind of doesn't. And the reason that it's kind of an unfortunate translation is because it leads us to believe that this word holy and being holy is all about our behavior, being good, morally good, right? Now, don't misunderstand. Morality is a part of holiness because God Himself is morally good, only ever morally good. But, if we think that all holiness means is behaving and being morally good, then it leads people to think that the calling of this verse is moral perfection because God is morally perfect. So the calling of the verse in some people's understanding is that we are to be morally perfect as God is morally perfect. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? You read this verse and you say, I cannot do that. I sin all the time. I'm a sinful person. Moral perfection is out of my reach. And so we read the verse and we go, I don't know what to do with it. We cast it aside oftentimes going, I either don't understand it or I don't think I can do it. So I'm not even going to, I'm just going to pretend like it's not even there. But a better translation for verse 15 would have been to be holy in all that you do, meaning to live in a state of holiness. Well, if we define it that way, then we have to define what this word holy means so we understand what we're being called to. Now, usually people equate holiness with behavior, right? Most people equate holiness with behaving and being good. While holiness will affect behavior, the biblical meaning of holiness is far bigger. It's much deeper and richer than just being good. The biblical meaning of holiness is to be set apart. 
it means to be literally unique. It's this idea of separation. So God is holy because he is set apart from and unique from all of humanity because humanity is all infected by sin. God is sinless. We are all tainted by sin. God is perfect. We are all impure, right? And that's why John says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what makes God holy is that he is set apart, that he is unique and distinct from what the Bible calls the things of this world, right? That's a Bible-type terminology, the things of this world. In 1 John, it tells us that we're to hate the things of this world. But that's often misunderstood too. It doesn't mean that we're to hate everything in the world, right? We're not to hate other people. We're to love other people. We're not to hate the physical beauty that God has created. We are, as it says in the book of Psalms, to look at it, appreciate, and worship God for what He's created. So it doesn't mean that we're to hate everything in the world, but what it literally means is to hate the sinful pursuits and the indecent things of the world. What makes God holy is He is set apart and unique from the sinful pursuits and the indecent things of the world. So the Apostle John would say it this way in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. So he kind of encapsulates all of the world's corruption and immorality and depravity in this sin-soaked world into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And we know what those things are in our world, do we not? The greed, that, that's of this world. The covetousness, that, that's something of this world. The crudeness and the vulgarity that often gets called entertainment in our society. That, that's one of the things of the world. The lust and the pornography that degrades women and destroys the sacredness of marriage. The gossip. The arrogant pride for our achievements and our possessions, the bullying and intimidation of pushing somebody else down to elevate ourselves, the cheating and the lying and the fraud and the bribery and all of those things, the sinful pursuits of the world, the indecent things of the world, that's what the Bible's talking about when it calls these things the things of the world. Now, here's the key. Stick with me. It is God's separation from these things that make Him holy. He is set apart. He is separate from these things. He is removed from these things. And the calling of Scripture is for us to be set apart from them too. That's what it means when it says, Be holy as I am holy. These things that we just talked about, the greed, the covetousness, the, the crudeness, the lust, the pornography, the, the gossip, the arrogance, the bullying, the cheating, the fraud, the fraud, all of the things that are the things of the world, the calling when it says, be holy as he is holy, are things that we are to set our, ourselves apart from. 
We are to be unique in the world because we are constantly turning our back to those things and we are therefore to live differently. Are you guys with me? Everybody still tracking with me? Now we need some application in a practical sense, don't we? How is it possible to do that, though? How does that work? Well, this is one of those God and us things. Remember, we've been talking about this throughout the book of Romans, that some of these things are a God and us thing. If you remember back as we studied through Romans, we came upon portions that talked about the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. And we talked about how that's been an age-old debate. And there are certain people that reject the responsibility of man. They say it's all the sovereignty of God and man has no responsibility. And there's other people that swing to the far other pendulum and they go, I don't know anything about the sovereignty of God, but it's all the responsibility of man. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it, man. And they swing all the way to that side. And then we studied the Bible and we figured out it was what? It was both. It was God and us. We both have a part in it. And that's the same thing here when we start to talk about be holy as I am holy. We both have a part in it. We have a part and God has a part. Now, for our part, it's a turning to God. It's a pursuing Him and at the same time turning away from sin. Those two things need to happen simultaneously. We turn to God, we draw closer and closer to Him, and as we do, we turn away from sin. Think about it like this. I'll give you a little bit of a weak illustration for this. If God was on one side of the room, sin would have to be on the complete other side of the room, right? Because they can't be together. They are polar opposites of one another. That's what makes God holy, is the opposite of sinfulness. So if God was on one side of the room and, and, and all of the sinful pursuits of the world were on the other side of the room, to pursue one, you have to turn your back on the other. To pursue one of them, you have to move away from the other. So to seriously pursue God, you have to turn your back on the sinful pursuits of the world and turn towards God and head toward Him. You can't be dabbling in them. You can't be justifying the sin of the world. You can't be longing after it and still participating in it and still wholeheartedly be going after God. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And so the opposite is true too. To pursue immorality, to draw closer to the sinful things of the world means a turning away from God and a moving away from God. It's not as if these two things are side by side. They're polar opposites. They're not side by side and can be pursued at the same time, though many people fool themselves to believe that they're doing both. Yeah, yeah, I'm pursuing God and I'm kind of dabbling in my sin. And yeah, I know I do that, but I'm still pursuing God. doesn't work like that. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. They're on polar opposites, ends of the spectrum. Turn towards one and turn your back on the other. That's, that's our side of things. That's our responsibility to do. But once we've made that decision to pursue God and His holiness and turn to Him then God's part comes into play. And God gives us the means 
and the power to walk in holiness. That's what Peter would tell us in his second epistle. Look, look what he says. 2 Peter 1.3. It is His divine power that has granted to us how much? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's His power that enables us to turn away and walk toward Him. I, I like the New Living Translation here. It says this, By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. That means that no one of us can say it's too hard. It is. It's too hard for any one of us to do on our own. But it's God's divine power that has granted us every single thing that we need to live a godly life. And the closer that we get to God, the more we pursue Him, the more we surrender to Him, the more mornings that we get up early to spend time in His Word, the more time we spend in prayer with Him, the more time we spend in worship to Him, the more our life will be being transformed by Him. And that's just straight up. And here's the reason why, and this is key going forward. This is why that's true. Because God's holiness is more powerful than the corruption of this world. Don't miss what I'm saying. This is really important for the rest of what I'm going to say. God's holiness is more powerful than all of that corruption in the world. All the things of the world. Let me explain it like this. In the Old Testament, God gave His people the Mosaic Law. 613 rules that they were to follow to set themselves apart as the people of God. And that was the primary reason for the law. So that God's people would be viewed as set apart, unique, and holy unto God. It was supposed to show the rest of the world what it looked like for people to walk with God. And so if they walked with God, as he had set aside these 613 laws called the Mosaic Law, if they did that as he had, he had asked them, they would then be a light to the world around them, right? The nation of Israel was always meant to be a light to the unbelieving nations around them, just like the church is supposed to be a light to the people around us, right? Unfortunately, Israel didn't always live that out, did they? They didn't always walk in the light, so therefore they weren't always a light to the world around them. And unfortunately, the church doesn't always walk in the light, right? And therefore is not always a light to the people around us. But here's the thing. And this is what I'm getting at when I say that God's holiness is more powerful than the corruption of the world. In the Old Testament, under that Mosaic law, if you came into contact with something that under the law was impure, you were then tainted by its impurity, right? There were things that if you came in contact with, you became impure. Its impurity was transferred to you. So under the law, it was things like dead bodies, people that had skin diseases like lepers and so forth, people that had particular ailments 
that there was an issue of blood involved in that ailment and so forth. There, there's others, but, but this just gives you an example. If you came in contact with a dead body, a leper, or somebody that had one of these ailments, then you were then made unpure according to the law. So what resulted then was that people with these ailments were usually banished outside of the general population. So when they were living in tents under Moses, traveling in the wilderness, you were outside of the camp. That's what the the Bible calls it. You were sent outside of the camp. Or when they came into the land and they were living in cities, you lived outside of the walls of the city if you had these ailments. Because if you came in contact with uh, otherwise healthy person, you infected them with your impurity. But when Jesus came, he lived under the law. The law was still fully in, in, in place. He lived out the law completely, never breaking a single bit of it. But he actually went around touching impure people. He touched the woman with the issue of chronic blood. He went around and he touched lepers. Nobody touched lepers. He would walk up and lay hands on a leper. He touched dead bodies. The daughter of Jairus walked up and touched the dead body. And when Jesus touched them, their impurity should have transferred to Jesus. But instead, His holiness was more powerful than their impurity. And their impurity was made pure by His holiness, and they were healed by what? Contact with Jesus. So here's the point, and we're done. Our calling is what? To be holy as He is holy. We've defined it as set apart. Here's here's how it works. The more that you and I are in contact with the impure things of this world, the more that we live in them, the more that we call them entertainment and pursue them, the more that we dabble in them, the more we try to justify them, the closer we draw to the things of this world, the more defiled we become. But the closer we get to Jesus, the more contact that you and I have with Jesus, the more holy we become because we become more set apart. The more time we spend with Him. It's what we talked about. If He's over here and and the sinful things are over there, we have to turn our back on one and, and start heading for another. And that's what it means to be holy as I am holy have full-on contact with Jesus. Allow His holiness to cleanse your impurity and continue to move towards Him. The more that we walk in that light, the more we will be a light to the world around us. The more we will be holy. The more we will be unique to the people around us. The more we will be set apart and different And there will be something obvious about us. And that will be the light of Jesus Christ. And with that, let's pray. Lord, that's our desire. We know that every one of us are a sinner. And we praise you. That you came and you went to the cross. 
to cleanse us of that sin, to set us free from all of the shame and the guilt. And so, Lord, we don't want to take that freedom and abuse it by turning back to that which you died for, to take away. We want to take that freedom and walk in the light. We want our lives to look differently. We want to truly be what holiness means, which is set apart for you. And so, Lord, we ask that right now, in a fresh and new and unique way, you would draw us closer to you. That we would determine today that tomorrow we're going to get up early and draw closer to you so there will be more holiness in our life. And throughout our day, we're going to be spending more time in prayer and more time in worship and more time reflecting on the things that you love as opposed to the things that you died to set us free from. So Lord, help us to turn our back on the impurity of this world that we might walk in holiness, that we might be a light to our neighbors that they might see our good work and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, we pray this together as a church, and we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.